All right, so we're in Acts chapter 7, and you re- if you've been with us, you know that uh, so far, the Christian church is jo- only a few days, weeks, maybe months at this point old, and it has grown to many thousands of people, all centered in Jerusalem. Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and share the gospel with everybody. So far, they've stayed in Jerusalem. Very soon, they're going to be scattered out into the world, and God is going to use persecution. He's going to use hardship to scatter them, but not quite yet. First, we get this long speech by Stephen. Remember, Stephen was one of the first deacons, a servant leader of the church. He was picked because of his high character. He was put in charge of this food distribution program, but it turns out God had bigger plans for him. Uh, He's going to use him to heal people, to do signs and wonders, to preach He's, he's got this really uh, important role in the beginning part of Acts. What we've been reading, if we go back before Christmas, what we've been reading is this sermon, this speech that he gives before his accusers, because he was arrested for preaching the gospel. He's brought before the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 of the religious leaders of Israel, plus the high priest, brought into this chamber inside of the temple. We've got a picture for it here set in the midst of the semicircle, and he has to defend himself in front of the, the smartest religious scholars of the day who are accusing him of evil. He starts into his sermon, and we looked at how he did with that, the things that he focused on. He went back, and he, he's given us a history lesson. He said, look, remember Abraham, guys, the father of our Jewish nation? God was with Abraham. And Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, God was with Joseph and used Joseph to move the people of Israel into Egypt in order to save their lives during famine. But it turns out God was doing more than simply saving their lives during famine. He was setting them up for slavery. How could God set up his own people for slavery? Well, God had actually prophesied that. He had said that to Abraham. He said, Abraham, Your people are going to return to this land someday. It's going to be their own, but for 400 years, they're going to serve as slaves in a foreign land. We saw how that worked out in very summarized form in Stephen's sermon so far. And now we're going to get to the main section of Stephen's Stephen's sermon. It's the longest section. It's twice as long as the Abraham section, like father of the Jewish nation. Eh, Just a little short section. Moses, giant section. Why would Stephen spend so much time on Moses? If you remember the accusations that were brought against him had to do with Moses. So before we read chapter 7, let's look in chapter 6. This is Acts chapter 6, 13 and 14. It's on page 914. It says this, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So some of the accusation against Stephen is actually an accusation against what Jesus had said. But some of it is specifically that Stephen is not valuing the teachings and the traditions of Moses and is actually speaking against Moses. So it makes sense that Stephen's now going to go back and he's going to tell the story of Moses as if to say, look guys, you're all worked up, but you and I, we think the same thing about Moses. We believe the same thing about Moses. And so he's going to go through this this summary. And at the end of his sermon, 
he's really going to blast him. And as he goes through this Moses section, it's like he's, he's feeling the blast coming on, and he just keeps pulling it back. He, he, he like hints at what's coming, and then he reins it back. He's, he's building up, and they're starting to recognize. So let's read it. Acts 7, 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. What's the promise here, this promise given to Abraham? It's the promise that eventually, Abraham, your descendants will come back and inherit the promised land, but you will be slaves for 400 years. As Stephen is telling the story of the Exodus, he's, we're at the point where it's almost 400 years. And we're told that things are bad for the Jewish people, they're slaves, but things get worse near the end. Because a new pharaoh, a new king of Egypt rises up, and he cares nothing for the, the previous hero, Joseph, who actually saved the, uh, one of the other pharaoh's rear ends, rescued the the nation. He doesn't care anything about that. All he sees is this Jewish nation within a nation is multiplying like rabbits. And what if they side with our enemies? What if they revolt against me? He's full of fear. He's full of jealousy. And he decides he has to stop this fast growth of the population of the Jewish people. He tries a couple different things, culminating in the order that, that all of the young Jewish baby boys must be thrown into the Nile to be murdered. This has always been part of Satan's plan. Throughout history, we see Satan, he can't create anything, he can't create life, he can't create hum- humans, anything, but he can destroy things, and he loves to destroy babies, even back the book of Exodus. We control God's people by destroying their babies. Now Moses comes along and he escapes that. He escapes that in a, in a surprising way. Caleb, do you know if that's my microphone or do you have another thing that's... Okay, I've got enough battery. Let's see what happens. Sorry about that, guys. All right. Moses, verse 20, at this time, so right before the deliverance was come, at this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, that means placed out to die, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Now, if you went back and you read this in Exodus, you know that Moses' mom, just like every mom, said, oh, this is such a beautiful baby. But we're told here that God said the same thing. This is a beautiful child. Now, is he talking about the exterior Moses? Maybe he was attractive. But we know from other parts of the scripture that what's important to God is not the external appearance. It's the stuff inside. Many years later, the prophet Samuel would be sent to a particular family in order to anoint the new king of Israel. 
And he gets there, and he sees all the sons lined up, and he sees the oldest son, Eliab, who is obviously biggest, strongest, handsomest, dudinest dude, right? He assumes that that must be the king. And God says, whoa, whoa slow down. This is 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He goes through this process in which David is finally anointed. Is that next? Is that first? Well, second, but great king. Back to Moses. God had a plan for Moses. He treasured Moses as a beautiful part of that plan, and he made sure that Moses' life was spared. Parents put him in a waterproof basket, set him on the Nile, and Pharaoh's own daughter discovered him, adopted him. He was raised as a prince of Egypt. He was being preserved and being equipped for the leadership role that he would soon have. As a mature man, he's still living as that prince of Egypt, but he's being drawn to the people of Israel. Maybe he knows he's an Israelite. Maybe he's been, you know, taught some of the, the Israelite history, or maybe he just realizes, hey, I look a little different than all of the other Egyptians. Why do I look like those slaves out there? But he's, he seems to be drawn to them, and so he goes to visit them. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So, and you go back to Exodus, and you can read more of this story. It's in Exodus chapter 2. We're told here that he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So it's not simply that he went out to see his brothers, saw that there was a guy being mistreated, and struck down the Egyptian who was mistreating him. This is a bigger thing in Moses' mind. Somehow Moses has already seen him, Self as a deliverer, as a savior for these people. Stephen is intentionally drawing parallels for us between Jesus and Moses. Through the rest of this section, it's as though he's saying Jesus is the more complete, the better, the truer Moses. Ken, would you make sure that all the other channels are muted? Okay, thanks. Moses is uh, he's a picture, he's a foreshadowing of Jesus. The, the literary term for this is he's a type. Uh, not that he's a version of Jesus. Jesus is the archetype. Moses is a type. You see this all throughout Scripture. So, um, Adam is a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus. Abraham, Joseph, Isaac, Moses, David, all these guys teach us little things about what will be completely fulfilled in Jesus. And this is, this is what Stephen is communicating to them. And as he continues to make this point, they get more and more uncomfortable because they realize where this is going. They're not so thrilled about it. Back to what he's saying. Verse 26. On the following day, he, Moses, appeared to them, some of the Jewish people, 
as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronged, who was wronging his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Now that's an interesting question because he is the son of Pharaoh. He is a ruler and judge over these slaves, right? Who made him that way? God did. Do they know who Moses is? I don't know. Do they know that he's actually one of them but living the good life as their slaves? No. Verse 28. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? If you went back and read the Exodus account, you'd realize that Moses looked around, made sure nobody was looking, and then killed the Egyptian. He thinks he's gotten away with it. Now he finds out he hasn't gotten away. They know that he has killed an Egyptian. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So Moses goes from one moment, he's thinking, yeah, I am the adopted prince of Egypt, and I'm going to like help these poor Jewish slaves. Next moment, he's running for his life and starting over as a 40-year-old in the land of Midian. It's important here that Stephen tells us he went to Midian. I love the ESV study Bible. There's very few things in it that I've ever read or looked at and thought, I think you guys missed it. Kind of an arrogant way of looking at it, right? These guys who dedicate their life to translating and you're writing all this stuff. Yeah, I think you guys got it wrong. But here's one of the ways that I think they got it wrong. If you look in your Bibles, almost every Bible has a, has a map of the Exodus, right? And they're all pretty similar. Here's the map for the Exodus in the ESV study Bible. And uh, if we zoom in some, let's go to the next slide, you can see there's these three possible routes. They've got them starting in Ramses, which is probably where they actually started. And one route has them coming down and kind of going around this little lake and off into the Sinai Peninsula. And another one has them cutting across the sliver of the little lake and going into the Sinai Peninsula. And the third route has them coming down to the Gulf of Suez. Here, you guys remember all the stuff about the Suez Canal last year when the boat got stuck in it? So that connects that Gulf of Suez up to the Mediterranean Sea. So they come down and then they cross over that little nub there and head off into the Sinai Peninsula. And I got to wonder... Have these guys read the Exodus account? Because this does not match the Exodus account at all. Especially the last one. Like, why in the world would they come down just a few miles onto the west side and then realize, oh no, we should have gone to the east side. I know, we'll walk through the middle of it instead of just go three miles up and go back around. This doesn't make sense to me. But all three of these, if we go to the next slide, are getting us to Mount Sinai. And here's what redeems the map for me. See the question mark at the end of Mount Sinai? We're not sure. Now, if you went to that site today, there's St. Catherine's Monastery. There's this big tourist industry that's grown up around it. You can go visit that. That has been the place for hundreds of years that people have considered Mount Sinai. But we are just told by Stephen, and we're told in Exodus, And we're told in Galatians, and we're told in a few other places in the Bible, that when Moses is hanging out with the sheep and God meets him on the mountain, says, I'm sending you back to Egypt, they were in the land of Midian. And where is the land of Midian? On the map. It's not in the Sinai Peninsula, is it? 
For all of human history, Midian has been that west coast of Saudi Arabia. It has never been the Sinai Peninsula. Now, recently, there have been some interesting uh, archaeological discoveries, and then there's some just good geographical arguments that would tell us that St. Catherine's Mount Sinai there in the middle is not Mount Sinai. It can't be. Now, if we go to the next slide, there are two possible really good crossing points. There's these possible underwater land bridges in these two places that go across the Gulf of Aqaba there. And once they're across that, in the land of Midian, there is a mountain, that's the next slide, called Jebel al-Laws. In Arabic, the mountain of the law, as in where God delivered the law to the people. You can go there today if you're sneaky. You might get shot at. Enough of that. Back to this. I think I'd like to learn more about that. I've got a book you can borrow. It's all kinds of weird stuff on the internet. I wouldn't necessarily recommend believing all that you read there, but it's good stuff. All right. Back to Moses. He's fled from Egypt to Midian. He gets married. He has some kids. Forty more years go by. Now he's 80. You probably don't picture Moses as 80 when he comes back, right? He's 80. Verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. So I appreciate that we sang the song this morning, Only a Holy God. Moses has just come into the presence of the Holy God, and he is trembling. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if when we came here on Sunday mornings, we all took our shoes off because we were entering into holy ground. Right? Our daughter Elizabeth, uh, I think we've broken her of it for right now, but her, her default is, as soon as she's in the car and buckled, there's this overwhelming urge in her to take her shoes off. Can I take my shoes off? Like, Elizabeth, it's 20 degrees outside. What are you going to do if we're... She just wants to take her shoes off. We don't take our shoes off when we come. Is this a holy building? Is this a holy room? Or how you guys would answer that? A few weeks ago, we had a visitor sat in the back corner, and I went over to introduce myself, and as I walked up, he was scanning the front of the room with this disgruntled, grumpy look on his face, shaking his head. I started talking to him, asking him what his name is, and how he's doing, and all that stuff, and then he, he went on to, to lecture me, some of you guys have heard this already, he went on to lecture me because we were allowing the kids to to roam freely and to run around and to make noise in the front of the sanctuary. He went on to explain to me that this is a holy place. Kids should be quiet, reserved, sitting with their parents, seen and not heard, right? They should not have fun in this room. 
And then he went on to explain to me that he travels around to lots of churches because he's promoting his motorcycle ministry. And almost every church that he goes to, there are no kids and young people. And I wondered, do you see a connection between this idea that, you know, we don't like kids, we don't want them to have fun, keep them, you know, in their seats and quiet through the whole thing, and the fact that there aren't any kids around. So I'm thankful for our kids that we have here. I'm thankful for Kelly downstairs serving them right now, and I don't know who's in the nursery, but I'm thankful for them right now, too. But that doesn't really answer the question. Is this a holy building? Is this a holy room? You know, we could meet in a rented facility, served a church for nine years where we met in a school cafeteria every Sunday morning. We could convert a storefront like Living Waters did, meet there on Sunday morning. This building could get taken out by the odd January tornado this week. We would continue as a church, as God's holy people, whether or not we have this building. This building is a gift to us. We should be good stewards of it, but is this building holy? Let's say it's made holy when we're here. Because we as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and we bring that presence of God in a very special way. Yes, God is everywhere in some sense, but we bring the the presence of God in a special way when we come together, especially to worship. And if we did it in the cafeteria at school, that cafeteria would be just as holy as we are there worshiping together. This mountain that God says, Moses, take off your shoes. This is a holy ground. It's not because that rock is particularly impressive. It's just like all the other mountains in the area. It's a holy place because God has picked it and designated it as holy, and God's presence is there in a special way with Moses. They could come down, go up to the next mountain. On the other side, that mountain would be just as holy because he's meeting with God there. All right, let's go back. Verse 35. He's told, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. Moses is probably not excited about this. Verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, not just that little rejection right before he fled, but serious rejection still in his life, whom they, the Jewish people, rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. Interesting little thing that Stephen does. Ruler and judge, ruler and redeemer. The judge is our redeemer. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses is 40 when he flees to the wilderness. He's 80 when he goes back to get them. Now they're 40 years in the wilderness. Puts Moses at what? 120, yeah. Now, Stephen is doing more than just retelling the story. He's emphasizing these certain parts of Moses' story to make a point about Jesus and eventually point fingers at the people who are accusing him, saying, you guys are just like the Jewish people who rejected Moses. Jesus is that fulfillment of Moses. Some of my favorite songwriters are Keith and Kristen Getty. They sing a bunch of their songs here. Matt Boswell and Matt Papa. And the four of them recently penned a song together called Christ the True and Better, where they go through Christ and compare him to Adam. 
into Isaac, into Moses. It's a really cool song. And the Moses verse goes like this. Christ, the true and better Moses, called to lead a people home. Moses called to lead the people home. Jesus leads us home. Standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, so Jesus' arms stretched wide on the cross, Moses' arms stretched wide for the parting of the Red Sea, see the waters part in two, see the veil is torn forever, so waters divide, the Israelites walk through to freedom, the veil in the temple is torn at the moment of Jesus' breath, at Jesus' last breath, we are welcomed into freedom. See the veil is torn forever, cleansed with blood, we pass now. Good stuff. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. He's he's affirming that God is a prophet, God has given information to the prophet Moses to give to the people of Israel, specifically the uh, Ten Commandments, and then the rest of the law, so the first five books of the Old Testament. He's, he's affirming all of that stuff, but then he's also saying, guys, not only do I believe everything that you believe about Moses, but let me remind you that Moses himself said, God's going to raise up another prophet like me. Not, not just like me, but like me. He's going to raise up another prophet just like me. His listeners are thinking, mm, talking about himself? We could stone him for that, right? he's probably talking about Jesus. And that's really going to make us mad. And that's what he's doing. He's saying this new prophet that Moses said would come is Jesus. And so if we take these last four verses and we look at the parallels that Stephen is intentionally setting up between Moses and Jesus, here's our list. Both are sent by God the Father. Both are rulers, redeemers, deliverers, leaders, and workers of signs and wonders. Now, Stephen's making that point about Jesus. But some of those things are true about Stephen, too. He's sent by God the Father. He's sent as a leader, and he's been working signs and wonders. But he wants us to see the significant parallel between Jesus and Moses. And then he wants to make sure that the people understand, just as the Jewish people rejected Moses, you guys, pointing to his accusers, have rejected Jesus. 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So this is like after they've been rescued out of Egypt, they want to go back to Egypt where it's safe. Saying to Aaron, the, mother of, or the brother of, of Moses, make for us gods. Not just a dumb statement by itself. You make a God, is it really? Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Why? Because Moses had been up on the mountain meeting with God for, anybody want to guess how many days? Forty. <laughs> He's showing up over and over again, right? Another parallel with Jesus. He's in the wilderness for how many days before he starts his ministry? Forty days. Yeah. This is not an accident. So what happened was, you can go back and read this in in chapter 32 of Exodus, the people of Israel are getting impatient waiting for Moses to come back down from the mountain. They're like, 
We don't know what, maybe he gave up on us, maybe he was eaten by animals, maybe God struck him dead. We don't know what's going on. So they turn to Aaron, they say, Aaron, would you make for us a God for us to worship and he can protect us and, and go before us? Aaron says, okay, give me all of your jewelry. He melts it all down. He makes this giant golden calf and they worship this calf as though it was their God. Now, if you want to read Exodus 32, you can see what Moses does when he comes back down. And it is pretty interesting how he decides to punish these Israelites. Verse 41, though. They made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. What does that mean? As it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Question Sometimes God gives us over to our sin. Sometimes God restrains us. Like our hearts are bent on sin and rebellion and instruction, and yet, and yet out of mercy, he, he restrains us and he keeps us from making the mess of ourselves that we would have made without that restraint. But sometimes he lets us run. He lets us fully experience the sin and rebellion that our hearts are bent towards, and the consequences that come from that. The Apostle Paul would write about this in a very direct way in Romans chapter 1. He says this, Therefore God gave them up, speaking of people in the past who, had, who they should have known better, they should have recognized that the created world points to a creator and worshiped him. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So their hearts are bent to idolatry, just like ours. They should have recognized the creator of everything because there's stuff that's created. Where did it come from? They should have worshiped their creator, but they didn't. Instead, they worshiped the creation, in this case, in the Exodus, the creation of their own hands, they made a golden calf, and they worshipped it. Paul goes on. This is what he means by giving them up to it. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul says... The idolatrous heart of these people who went before him. God gave them up to what they wanted, and the result was perversion of human sexuality. A concrete result of their idolatrous desire. Shook their fists at God. They said, you will not rule over us. We will make the rules. We will do what we want to do, not the way you have created things to work. We will make a new reality. We go back to Stephen now, verse 43, wrapping this up. You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So he's, he's pointing back in history, but he's also pointing forward, warning the Jewish leaders. He talks about Molech and Rephon. Rephon seems to be a reference to an Egyptian false god that was associated with Saturn. 
His symbol was a star, specifically a six-pointed star. And interestingly, it was not until very recent years that we had the ability to see this, but the north pole of the planet Saturn is a continual storm in the shape of a hexagon. Six-pointed figure. There's no way they could have seen that. And yet, they named their false god after Saturn, gave him that six-pointed star symbol there. How in the world does that happen in ancient Egypt? Hmm. What about the other one? Moloch, or later spelled Molech. He was not a deity of Egypt where they'd come from. He was a deity of the Canaanite pagans where they were going. The Canaanites worshipped Molech by sacrificing their children. Beginning of this story, people are sacrificing children, killing them. End of this story, people are sacrificing children, killing them. This was, this was something from the Babylon Bee. I love the Babylon Bee. They write satire. This is not true, right? But um, Cecile Richards thanks ancient god Molech for continued government funding of Planned Parenthood. What are they getting at there? You've seen lots of memes recently, hopefully of Molech equated to the abortion industry. It's because the worshipers of Molech, they'd build this giant statue. If we go to the next giant bronze statue, and they'd build a fire at it, heat it up, and they would offer their children to this false god, place them on the superheated statue to be burned to death. Why did they do this? Because they thought it would bring them success, wealth, security, all the things that they wanted in life. And so writers of the Babylon Bee, they, they put that together and they say, look, it's what the abortion industry is about. We kill our children so that we can get the things that we want, right? But this is not a joke. This is not satire. This is what the people of Israel actually embraced at different times in their history. Stephen brings it up and he says, this is like you guys, pointing at his accusers. You guys, you, you know the truth, he's saying to them. He goes back to the beginning of his sermon. You know that God was with our father Abraham and he chose us as his people and he set us apart. He made us different. We're a special people. And you know that God was with Joseph and Joseph rescued our people and he put us into the incubator of Egypt where we could grow to many, many thousands or maybe even a few millions of people. And you know that God was with Moses who led our people out of slavery and crossed the Red sea, part of the Red Sea and you know, all the miracles and all that stuff, the delivery of the law from outside. You know all of that, guys. And yet you're missing the point of it. It's all pointing to Jesus. And because you're missing the point of that, he's inferring here, you guys are idolatrous. You're like your, your, your ancestors who couldn't wait for Moses to come down and you made the calf and you, you made the star of Rephim and, and you worshipped Molech and you, you left the one true God and you went after all these things even though you knew the truth that God had revealed. Now he's, he's starting to poke his accusers. He's really going to get to them in a couple weeks, but now, first he's got to back off, and next week Scott Bruns from Cider Hills Camp is going to preach to us in that back off section. 
where he, he slows down the attack and he goes and says, God is with David, God is with Solomon in the building of the temple, and then eventually God is with us, Emmanuel. And then he's just going to full force after his accusers and end up dead because of it. But as we went through this Moses passage, I hope you can kind of feel the tension that's growing inside of him as he wants to blast these guys and he, he's pulling back and he wants to say, you guys are just like your idolatrous ancestors. What is wrong with you? Now, there's pretty much no way I can take that and flip it around at the end and try to give you some kind of encouragement. Because the whole point of it is, really, look at yourself. What, what are your idols? The beginning of a year is a good time to do that. What, what are the things that I put as a priority over God? What are the things that I desire that I think will fulfill me instead of God? What are the idols of my heart? Our hearts are idol-making factories. It's what we do as humans. Reflect, what are the idols that are competing against God in our hearts right now? I'll tell you, one of the idols for me is the desire to be God as judge. So as I'm writing this out, sermon out, I'm thinking, okay, write these things, and I'm going to suggest these as possible idols to the people, right? Like, I'm going to stick you and convict you. So if this is more important to you than God, then that's an idol. And if this is what you treasure, then that's an idol. And if this is what you're thinking about all the time, then that's an idol. I was going to you know, name them and stab you guys. And at that time that I'm writing that, God is saying, don't you see your own idolatry in this? Do you want to be the judge of the people? you want to prick them in the heart? Really, that's my job. I'm not going to give you that list. Instead, I'm going to confess that I have that list written in my own idolatrous desire. We're going to pause for a minute, and we're going to reflect. What are the idols of our hearts? And then we're going to come to the cure of the idols of our hearts, Jesus. Worship him in communion. Let's pray. Father, um, Thank you for this long section that Stephen gives us about Moses. Thank you that Moses is pointing us to Jesus, and he is so much better, the true and better Moses. Thank you that he is our deliverer, he is our ruler, he is our redeemer, he is our judge, he is the payment for our sins, all of these things. He patiently calls us back to him when we are rebelling and often idolatry. So, Lord, I ask that you would work in us in these couple minutes of reflection and in our time of communion. Would you do that exploratory surgery in our hearts to find the things that we are treasuring more than you, that we want more than you, that we would intentionally disobey you to get? Please work in our hearts now as we reflect. Help us to know your great love for us is even greater than our adult. In Jesus' name.